Good morning, everyone. I am Roger Wisdom. I am uh, grateful to be here. My wife Barbara and I have been part of the Melanie Park Church family since 1994. And uh, I am grateful to be part of a team that will be filling in for Todd while he's on sabbatical this summer. And with that in mind, I'd invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. And if you will, please follow along as we read the passage that we're going to focus on this morning. Matthew 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it become salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under the foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them shall be called great. In the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray for our study this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this time to gather together to worship you through song and through prayer and through study. I pray as we focus on your word this morning that you'll instruct us and challenge us and change us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This summer, we're beginning a series based on someone else's sermon, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This sermon has impacted folks down through the centuries. The church father, Augustine, called it a perfect standard of the Christian life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his classic work, The Cost of Discipleship, his writing was based on the sermon. And it's common knowledge that Mahatma Gandhi drew his political views for the message of the sermon. The sermon has three major sections. Matthew 5, verses 2 through 16 are the introduction. It describes the citizens of the kingdom, their character, and the impact that they can have on society. Matthew 5, verses 17 through chapter 7, verse 12 are the heart of the sermon. It contains truth about the nature of the kingdom focusing on character development with an emphasis on internal righteousness as opposed to external actions. The sermon concludes in Matthew 7, verse 13 through 29, emphasizing the choices that folks must make to enter the kingdom. As we lead up to our passage this morning, I'd like to set it in its context. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we're told that Jesus launched his ministry. It reads, from that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The text goes on to tell us in verse 18 that he selected four men 
Peter, Andrew, James, and John, who would become part of his band of, of apostles. And then in verses 23 through 25, he said he was going out through Galilee, and his ministry was attract, attracting a lot of people. So this young carpenter preacher, around the age of 30, went to a hillside in Galilee, and the crowds followed him, and he preached a revolutionary sermon that, according to verse 1, was directed to his disciples. We often equate that word disciples with the apostles, but the word itself simply means a learner. And there were many who came to learn from Jesus that day. Many were curious. Unfortunately, once the sermon was over, his words were too tough for them, and they left unchanged. The focus of this sermon is his disciples. I think we might call them true disciples. What do I mean by that? These were folks who had uh, responded to Jesus' message. They had repented. They had identified uh, with Jesus as the Messiah, the coming king. They had been accepted by God. They had new life in the kingdom. We might call them believers. So to these disciples, true disciples, followers of Jesus, he begins the sermon with the Beatitudes. Someone has called them the beautiful attitudes. These are the inner character of a true disciple in the first century and the true character of a true disciple in the 21st century. The Beatitudes are the wealth of character that God is developing within us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, the spiritually humble. Blessed are those who mourn, the gentle, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those, those who are persecuted. And these verses are tied to our text this morning when we realize that the Beatitudes is who we are. And they cannot be lived out in isolation or in private. They will attract attention. Sometimes takes the form of opposition. But Jesus develops around two figures how the Beatitudes relate to society around them. How we relate to the society around us as being salt and being light. You are the salt of the earth. The ancient world as today, in many cases, salt is valued for a number of reasons. The question we have to ask and answer is, what reason does Jesus have in mind? Salt was valued as a seasoning agent. Salt has a way of bringing out flavor in food. When we sit down at the table, we say, pass the salt. Just as a side, this is advice, and it's free. It doesn't cost you anything. It's not part of the sermon. It's just advice. People who prepare food would like for you to taste the food before you salt it. <laughs> but we recognize that salt has a way of bringing out the flavor in food. Even long ago, Job said, Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? So perhaps Jesus meant that we bring a zest to life as being salt. 
Salt also creates thirst. You sit down with a bag of potato chips or pretzels and maybe a salty dish, you want something to wash that down with. Uh, as a, my preparation, I learned there are some places in our world where uh, people take salt as a way of reminding them to drink water, which seems strange to me, but avoids dehydration. So maybe we are of worth to Jesus by being uh, creating a thirst for God. Salt also has the ability to preserve. In the ancient world, that was its primary use as a preservative. And I, I think that that's what Jesus has in mind. He's in Galilee, an agrarian place near the Sea of Galilee, where there were fishermen and farmer, farmers. And when they caught those fish or sent that meat to the, to the market, they would salt it down first. They would sell it around Galilee, but they would also sell it in the capital city of Jerusalem, miles away where transportation was slow and refrigeration was non-existent. They would pack it with salt to make sure that it would keep it from decaying. Salt has a preserving effect. In other words, it slows down the decaying process. Think with me about our friend Rip Van Winkle. If he were to take one of his famous naps and he took a lay down in the late 1980s or maybe the early 1990s and he woke up this week in 2023, I believe he would be, a, be shocked by the eroding standards of our culture. I think you would agree that uh, moral decay in our society is a real thing. What was viewed as unthinkable 30 and 40 years ago is now seen as good and wonderful. In such a world, disciples of Jesus are important because they can have effect on delaying the moral decay of our society. We are like salt in a corrupt society because in a small way, you, you can arrest, you can slow down that decay in society, in your sphere of influence. But we need to keep two things in mind. Jesus is going to imply one and state the other. First of all, we need to be in touch with our culture. One thing about salt is it must come in contact with the meat or the fish to be effective. It does no good if it stays in the shaker. Throughout history, religious types have withdrawn to monasteries and with great ideas and, and, and great aspirations and, and great motives. But in doing that, they deny what Jesus wants a disciple to be and to do, to be a witness, to be salt. Whenever a person becomes a salt shaker that has never shaken, it's missed Jesus' mission for us in society. Whenever a church becomes a salt warehouse, it has missed what Jesus has in mind for us as a church. Salt must come in contact with the fish or the meat to be effective. And we as believers must come in contact with our culture to be effective as salt. Second, we must retain our distinctiveness. That is saltiness. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. From chemistry class... It's been a while since I've been in chemistry class, but uh, we, we know that 
salt is sodium chloride, and sodium chloride does not lose its saltiness. So what is Jesus talking about here? Most of the salt that was used in Israel was taken from the marshes and lagoons, the beaches and the rocks of the Dead Sea. It had a mineral that resembled salt, but it was a salt repository. But it could be diluted with sand or dirt or other things that just made it unsalty. It actually became a white, hard substance that was good for nothing except to be thrown out on the pathway for people to walk in. And that's what Jesus has in mind when he says those words. When that happens, the salt is good for nothing. If salt loses its distinctiveness, it's worthless. And that's true of those who are citizens of the kingdom and called to be salt in society. A Christian who has absorbed the world system, been squeezed by its culture, looks no different than the society around it has lost its distinctiveness, has lost its effectiveness as salt. I am convinced that believers, beatitude people, as salt in our world can have an impact, an impact in the home, impact in the job market, impact in the classroom, impact in the neighborhood, impact in the church by being salt. You are the salt of the earth. And Jesus wants us to cultivate that saltiness through a relationship with him and being led by the Spirit. You are the salt of the earth. And you might be thinking, wait a minute, wisdom. What what do you mean I am the salt of the earth? Well, we need to realize that in our sphere of influence, We can be an influence. We can make an impact because a little salt goes a long way. So, shake your salt. You are the light of the world. When you think about it, salt is negative. It keeps something bad from happening. Light, on the other hand, is positive. It causes something good to happen. Jesus is saying that we don't do this uh, by pulling up our, our, our bootstraps, bootstraps or doing it on our own. We do it by being related to him. Donald Gray Barnhouse was the pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia for a number of years. And he used to illustrate it this way. He said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He was like the sun during the day. When the sun went down, the moon came up. And the the moon reflected the light of the sun. When Jesus was here on earth, he was the the light of the world. His death, burial, and resurrection, ascension, he went to heaven and the moon came up. You and I, and we reflect the light of Jesus in the world. Jesus made two points about light. First, you can't miss it. A city set on a hill. Hilltop cities in Israel were amazing sites. They were built on those hilltops for a variety of reasons. But the point that Jesus is making here, when you're in the light of the world, everyone will see it. Everyone will know it. Second, he says, people do not hide their lamp under a basket or a bowl. 
use light to help people see. What Jesus has in mind was a, a bowl with oil and a wick. It was hard to light. It was hard to relight. And so it had an accompanying cover, uh, uncombustible, non-combustible, uh, porous material that if they wanted to cover the light, they would cover it. Our daughter, Kathy, has collected uh, lamps over the years. She's gotten them from places where they sell used lamps and garage sales and, uh, and estate sales and other places. These are beautiful lamps, glass bases. Some have had to be restored, but they're beautiful lamps. Uh, she calls them functional art. <laughs> they add an artistic flair to her home, but that's not their function. Their function is to light that dark room so we can find our way around when we're visiting. She can find her way around that room. When Jesus is talking about salt, he implied that our culture was decaying. When Jesus talked about salt, he implied that our culture uh, was covered in spiritual darkness. And he says, let your light shine. So you are light. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What is the light? Simply speaking, the light is good works, things that we do that cause people to understand that we are sons and daughters of God and they will glorify him and they will praise him who is in heaven. The late British preacher John R.W. Stott had a great take on this. He said, I sometimes think how splendid it would be if non-Christians were curious to, to, to discover the secret source of our light and were to come up to us and ask, twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. Why do you shine the way you do? And you could step back and say, I, I want to tell you my story, what God has done in my life. Now, though that word works in uh, verse uh, 18, uh, excuse me, verse 16, uh, caused Jesus, I think, to uh, other the, the, the next words that he speaks of. Uh, the Jews of that day would hear that word works and they'd think of the law. And so Jesus is going to give them his understanding of works and the law. He's going to get ahead of the game in this idea of the law early in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus takes pains, uh, I think, uh, to, like, uh, to uh, liken his teaching to the Old Testament. He has a high view of the Old Testament. And one thing I want you to notice, it talks about the law and, and the prophets. I, I think he's talking about the entire Old Testament. Later in Matthew, he says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So the entire Old Testament had a prophetic function. Something else that I think is significant is that in, this, in these three sections, Jesus is coming into focus. When he talked about the Beatitudes, he spoke in the third person. Blessed are they 
Blessed are the, blessed are those. When he talked about the salt and light, he moved to the second person. Blessed are you, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. But now when he talks about his relationship to the Old Testament, he said, don't think that I came to abolish the law. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. First, I think that he wants us to understand that the Old Testament is not going to be thrown out some, like some ancient relic. It will continue until the end of time. Truly, I truly, truly, I say to you, heaven and earth will pass away. It will be there till the end of time. Second, after looking through the telescopes at the heaven and earth, he looks through the microscope at penmanship. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. The smallest letter in the 22-letter alphabet, Hebrew alphabet, is the yod. It's similar to our apostrophe. The stroke is called a serif. It's a small line that was used to change a letter within the Hebrew alphabet. We could liken it to changing a capital P to a capital R by having a little diagonal line added to that P. But in these words, Jesus is upholding the authority and the reliability and the truthfulness of the written text. Nothing will happen to it until the, the end of time. It will last. And I know what you're saying, what you're thinking. Wait a minute, wisdom. It seems to me that some things have been done away with. But Jesus himself in Mark chapter 7 seems to indicate that the Food laws have been abolished. The book of Leviticus is filled with information about sacrifice of animals and grain and other acts of worship, but yet the New Testament writers in the book of Hebrews say that's all been done away with. And why don't we worship on the Sabbath? Why don't we do this? Why don't we do that as it relates to the law? Folks have come up with various answers I think the understanding and the answer comes in that word fill or fulfill, which means to fill full. I think the understanding of that word will help us understand what Jesus is saying. Think about the Old Testament as a pencil sketch. And think about Jesus Christ as the painting. All the details of the pencil sketch of the Old Testament would be fulfilled, filled in, in the painting of Jesus. But how specifically did that happen? How specifically did he fulfill the Old Testament? There are three ways, I think. First and foremost, the prophetic predictions and patterns were fulfilled in Jesus. The prophecies concerning him, uh, that he was Messiah to come, and he arrived, and he was the, is the Messiah. Over and over again, we see the words, and this was said, or this was done to fulfill the prophet, and they would be named. He fulfilled, he filled full the Old Testament through the prophetic predictions and patterns. The second way 
that he fulfilled the law was he personally obeyed it perfectly. He became the sinless sacrifice. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus obeyed the moral code, the ethical commands, perfectly. And he became the perfect sacrifice for sin. Which leads us to the third way that he fulfilled the Old Testament. And that is through his death and his resurrection. As we know, the law prescribed a sacrificial system that was exhausting. Day after day, week after week, especially year after year, people brought sacrifice for sin. But when Jesus came on the scene and John saw, uh, John the Baptist saw him walking, John records his words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Fulfill it in the sense that he is the object that brought it to completion. The history of the Old Testament is the history of Christ's life. The ceremonies pointed to him. The animal sacrifices pointed to him. The food laws pointed to him. The Old Testament is but a pencil sketch. Jesus Christ is the painting that fills in that pencil sketch. He fulfilled the Old Testament writings by bringing their teachings and doctrines into clear focus. And he made it clear in verse 19 that it's important that they not take that teaching lightly. They must be committed to obeying it. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to provide a complete understanding of it. Therefore, these commandments must mean more than just Old Testament revelation. They must include these words that we are going to study in the Sermon on the Mount. They must include God's interpretation of the Old Testament as we see it fleshed out in the coming weeks in the sermon. And he is saying that the life of a, of a disciple of Jesus lived under the authority of the Scriptures. You are not to minimize its message. You are not to compromise and say that it doesn't mean what it says or what it means. In essence... He was saying in the Sermon on the Mount, I am the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And now as the king establishing a kingdom predicted in the Old Testament, I'm giving commands. And your standing in the kingdom will depend upon your obedience and your teaching of these commands. Jesus challenged his listeners to be salt and light. For the remainder of chapter 5, as we'll see as we walk through this over the next few weeks, 
God gives a number of commands and instructions explaining the true spirit of the law. In the coming weeks, we're going to deal with some difficult but contemporary topics. And folks have a tendency to downplay them, to dismiss them, to diminish their meaning, to say they don't really mean what they mean or what they say. But Jesus gets to the heart of the matter. We may not like what he's going to say about murder and anger or adultery and lust or divorce and selfishness. But what we must not do is neglect them, deny them, diminish them. He will not allow that. As we study the Sermon on the Mount this summer, we're going to see that Jesus stresses the internal over the external. He is more concerned with our heart than our actions. That's why he begins with the Beatitudes, the inner character that God is developing in us that will be demonstrated in the world because it's who we are. Those Beatitudes cannot be lived out in a private way. Jesus explains how they are to be uh, used in relationship to society. And I want to make two observations as we close. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. That plural pronoun, you, is emphatic in the original language. I'm told it's rude to point. You, 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 you are salt and light. The second thing I want us to understand is that Jesus does not say, you should be salt. You could be light. You are salt. You are light. You don't even need to pray, Lord, make me salty. Lord, please make me shiny. You are salt. You are light. In a society that is morally decaying, you are part of Jesus' strategy for making an impact by shaking your salt. In a world that is in spiritual darkness, you are part of Jesus' strategy for making an impact by shining your light. As believers, we are salt and light. People who model God's grace and help the lost find direction. Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Thank you for this sermon that we'll be sharing on these summer Sundays. I'm grateful, Father, that it is clear that we are salt and we are light and your expectation of us as believers is to make an impact in the world for Jesus Christ. By your grace and by the power of, spirit, of your spirit, may we do that where you have placed us, in the home, in the workplace, in the classroom, wherever it might be. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The um, thing about it is that Jesus, when he preached that sermon on the hillside, it was focused on his disciples. But he knew there were people in that crowd 
who were interested. They were curious. We know that we get to the end of the sermon in the end of July, or in, in August, the message to, will be to them. His heart was for those folks as well. It's a lot like our church. Most of you here have made a decision to be a follower of Jesus Christ, a disciple. Maybe some of you who have come, you enjoy the fellowship, you enjoy the friendship, but you've never made that decision. It is the most important decision you can make in your life. So if you're here and you've never committed your life to Christ, never trusted him as your Savior, I'd, I'd encourage you, based on our knowledge of Jesus' heart for those who were in that crowd that day, that if you came with someone, talk to them. If they're a believer about Jesus, contact the church office, contact one of the elders. Find out what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus' heart, not only for those who were his followers, but for those who were curious, for those who would eventually walk away, but they were still in his heart. Father, I thank you that we are given a mission to be salt and light. May we carry that out faithfully by your spirit. And Lord, let me also pray for our 40 church family members who are in Israel. Pray that they're having a great time and give them a safe trip back. Help us now as we go out into the world to shake some salt, to shine some light. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.